When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. President Trump, with the nomination of Judge Kavanaugh, has fulfilled or is fulfilling two of his campaign promises. First, to undo women's reproductive freedom. Second, to undo ACA. And so I will oppose him with everything I've got. I do not ask about a nominee's personal opinions. Tomorrow, I begin meeting with members of the Senate. He's starting, I don't want to call it a beauty pageant, but sort of making his rounds yep. on the Hill. And a judge's job is not to be making social policy for America. If confirmed by the Senate, I will keep an open mind in every case. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man about to be welcomed in Great Britain with a state dinner from Queen Elizabeth and a blimp over Parliament depicting him as a giant orange baby. Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Let's talk about Trump and the Supreme Court. Supreme Court nominations are the rare case where Trump hasn't been the norm breaker, unless you count the theatrics like his absurd reveal of the winners of his beauty pageant. He hasn't chosen pretend justices from Fox News or performers from Duck Dynasty. He picked Neil Gorsuch and now Brett Kavanaugh, two experienced, credentialed conservative jurists from the same Federalist Society list that Ronald Reagan and George W. Bush picked from. Say what you will about their ideology or their jurisprudence, they're highly qualified nominees. No, the norm breaker is Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who in 2016 created a new rule out of thin air, a rule that a president doesn't get to fill Supreme Court vacancies in an election year. He wouldn't even give Merrick Garland, a completely qualified, moderate nominee, a hearing when Barack Obama picked him. Democrats were far too complacent about the way McConnell and his fellow Senate Republicans stole their seat. They should have blocked Senate business and done their best to make McConnell's life hell until he agreed to live by the rules. And they should have done the same thing when Trump appointed Neil Gorsuch, not because Gorsuch wasn't qualified, but because Republicans owed them a justice. And now they should do their damnedest to block Brett Kavanaugh for the same reason, not because he isn't qualified or because he's super extreme, but because the Republican president chose him. Repeat after me, the Republicans stole a seat from the Democrats. Until the stolen seat is returned, Democrats need to play by the McConnell rules. This is an election year, so no vote. Democrats should boycott the whole confirmation process, and if humanly possible, block it. They shouldn't meet with Kavanaugh, just as Republicans refuse to meet with Garland. If there are hearings, they should skip them, and they should block as much other Senate business as they possibly can. Now, I know what you're going to say. With 49 votes and a few of those wavering, Democrats aren't going to succeed in blocking Kavanaugh's nomination. But Mitch McConnell established a new norm on court appointments, and Democrats can't keep playing by the old rules. Coming up on the show, I'll discuss Brett Kavanaugh with constitutional law professor Noah Feldman. But first, you might have heard South Carolina Congressman Trey Gowdy ranting and raving about the Mueller investigation. Gowdy says it's time to bring this witch hunt 
to an end. Okay, now hold on. This witch hunt has gone far enough. Finish it the hell up. Uh, well, Mr. Gowdy, we are uh, collecting as many witches as we have. The investigation is uh, proceeding uh, at pace, and we are ready to charge some of those witches. Well, if you have something, then show it to me. Show it to me. Show it to the people. Finish it up. Well, uh, Mr. Gowdy, with respect, we have uh, indicted several witches already, and we are handing down more indictments this week. Stop withholding! If you know something, if you have something to do, do it already! Well, we, we actually, I, I have an actual witch here in the building. I'm a witch. Let me go. Okay. If you have a witch, tell me about it. Well, Let there, me hear her voice. Well, yes, she, I, I'm sorry. This is a witch right here. You can see she's green. I'm and she's, a witch, and I do things with potions and notions, and they got me all locked up in here, and they won't tell me how long this is going to last. Why are you avoiding my questions? Uh, I'm I'm trying not to. It, I mean, the notions actually aren't illegal. It's the potions that we are concerned about. But we do have a, a witch here. I don't see anything. I don't understand how you could be doing this investigation for so long and have come up with absolutely nothing. Well, we've We've found things. Right, but I found nothing after two and a half years. You're telling me after over a year you haven't found anything? Do you want me to turn him into a newt, Gingrich? Today's sketch was improvised in our Brooklyn studios by Steve Waltine, Kate James, and Asher Perlman. It then cha- it then changes though if I am there, right? Because then what's wrong with you that you're not? <laughs> I mean, what is wrong with him? <laughs> yeah, that's, a, yeah. <laughs> that's a great point. <laughs> yeah. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Joining me on the line is Noah Feldman. He's a professor at Harvard Law School and the author of many books, including a recent biography of James Madison. Hello, Noah. How are you, Jacob? I'm very well, thank you. Um, We have a lot to talk about uh, with the Supreme Court nomination of Brett Kavanaugh. Um, Of course, you know him. You you highbrow lawyers and law professors all know each other, but he's a colleague of yours at at, uh, Harvard, right? He's regularly taught a course in our January term, um, and he, when he's around, he's very active. He comes to the faculty dining room, hangs out with everybody. He's a super collegial person. Say a little about him. I mean, you did a little preview uh, piece in Bloomberg the other day where you did a review of the four finalists, and you said, among other things, um, that his students love him. Is that just a throwaway? I mean, students, if you take a professor's course, you probably do like that professor. But, um, I mean, he's, uh, he's a popular teacher. Well, I love your optimistic view that all students love all teachers. Um, <laughs> maybe it was like that when, when you went to Yale and Brett Kavanaugh went to Yale. But the fact is, he is liked because he is an extremely clear teacher, an extremely clear legal thinker, and he's also extremely engaging as a person. He's charming. He's funny. He's disarmingly open about you know what his views are, even when they're views that one disagrees with a lot. And you know, he's, he's a, a great colleague. He's a well-liked person. You know, what you said is completely right, Jacob, about in the little legal world, everybody knows 
everybody, but within the inner circles of the inner circles of the inner circles of that world, you would have found, you know, Brett Kavanaugh, Elena Kagan, and maybe a handful of other people whom everyone believed were on their way to being on the Supreme Court when the president of the appropriate party was in office. So, I mean, he's the insider's insider and someone who it's been known would have a good shot of being on the Supreme Court ever since he went on the Court of Appeals a little more than 10 years ago. Yeah, I mean, we've already used the terms Yale and Harvard uh, quite a few times in this conversation. There was a very quick piece that came out as soon as he was nominated by Akhil Amar, who's a law professor at um, Yale and I guess was a teacher, a law school professor of Kavanaugh's, defending him, arguing what a good guy he is, proposing a kind of strange deal about how Democrats should should ask whatever questions they want and then vote for him. Um, but I, I, he drew an immediate fire from from liberals who said, oh, you, you know, you cozy Ivy League law professors just kind of pull for each other regardless of the political stakes. And it's not about how nice a guy you are. This is about some of the biggest issues in American life. What, did, what do you think of that little controversy? Well, I'm of two, two minds about it. Let me start with the necessary disclosure. This is going to make all listeners even more suspicious of all of us, which they should. Akhil Amar was also my constitutional law professor. So, you know, the, the, the inner rings of nepotism are, are, are profound. I think that on the one hand, Akhil is expressing a view that a lot of constitutional lawyers, including law professors, hold, which is we'd rather have really smart, really effective people in charge of interpreting the Constitution. And we recognize that the party that we prefer, at least that I prefer, isn't always going to be in power. And then we would rather have a smart person from the other side who shares our basic picture of the world, even if it's not in agreement about how the Constitution should be read, than somebody who's a complete unknown, a complete outsider. Now, as I expressed that view, you can think of why the criticism is also valid and legitimate. You know, maybe we should have people who are complete outsiders, who would take a very different perspective on the Constitution, who would blow it up and interpret it differently. Some of our great justices in the history of the Supreme Court, people like Hugo Black, who came up with extremely different constitutional interpretations, many of them very influential, many of them still in place were real outsiders. You know, Black had gone to the University of Alabama Law School when you could fit the whole law school into one classroom. So, you know, the world might be a more interesting place constitutionally if we had greater breadth. I think that Professor Amar also hopes that Brett would be open to some of his constitutional interpretations, um, which are themselves kind of hard to pin down on politics. You know, Akhil's views, Akhil always describes himself as a Democrat and as a liberal, but then often his written theories of the Constitution would push in directions that a lot of people think are more conservative. So he's sort of quirky in terms of his own constitutional interpretation. So, you know, I think the bottom line is this is going to be a totally political process. So we haven't yet said the word Merrick Garland, but I'm sure we'll say that more time. That that was but my that was my next uh, that was my next question. No, I mean, all right, it, then I'll shut up and let you ask about well, Merrick Garland, I, and then I'll answer it as though I just thought of it. Yeah, I mean, you know, you, you can you can answer whatever question you want, but the one on my mind is: look, yes, the process has becoming been becoming more political over time, but the Republicans took a huge quantum leap when they refused to consider Merrick Garland simply because he was nominated by Barack Obama, and aren't Democrats within their rights? if not necessarily in their power to succeed politically, in saying, Brett Kavanaugh may be a very good guy. We're not going to give him a hearing on the basis of Lex Talionis. You took one of ours. We're going to take one of yours. Basically, I agree with that. I mean, I think there's no question that the Democrats controlled the Senate 
they wouldn't give Brett Kavanaugh or anybody that Trump nominated uh, the time of day. They wouldn't they wouldn't move to confirm. And that's because of Garland. I agree with that. Now, to be scrupulously fair, lots of Republicans have said to me, well, look, you say that this started with Garland, but it didn't. It started with Robert Bork and how when the liberals, you know, pushed very hard calling Bork out of the mainstream. I don't completely buy that counter argument. It's true that liberals politicized the nomination process when they successfully opposed Bork, but they were not taking the position that nobody whom Ronald Reagan would put forward would be okay. Right. And there they was a nomination process. They did. Ha- they did ha- go through with the process. They gave him a hearing. The public talked about it. They voted him down. And then eventually they got they got Anthony Kennedy, who was still very conservative. I mean, we didn't we didn't know at the time that Kennedy would turn out to have certain moderate streaks. It's very different, I think, what happened to Garland. I mean, there the Republicans were just flat out saying we won't take anybody that Barack Obama puts forward. So, yeah, I mean, I think all's fair in love war in Supreme Court confirmations. And if the Democrats could block Brett Kavanaugh, I'm certain that they would. And I would not be out there saying what an outrage that is, because after all, the Republicans have now done it. That said, as you intimated, I don't really think that they're going to have the votes to do that. And that's something that also we just have to be realistic about. I mean, Donald Trump, who has been a norm breaker in every respect, has been pretty much a norm follower in the kinds of Supreme Court justices he has nominated. I mean, Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh could have been appointed by Reagan or or George W. Bush very easily, right? I would take it further. Not only could have been appointed, would have been appointed. Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh were appointed by George W. Bush, first of all. They both worked in his administration and they both were appointed by him to the federal bench. That's the first thing. It's not even a hypothetical. They were appointed by Bush. If you know, another Bush appeared and became president of the United <laughs> States and clone today, that person would have also made Brett Kavanaugh a Supreme Court justice. He was the person most everybody assumed would become a Supreme Court justice. I mean, one indicator of that is if you're a law clerk for Brett Kavanaugh, your odds were something like nine out of 10 of getting a Supreme Court clerkship. No other judge in the country was even close to that, not even Merrick Garland, who had a very, very high record of getting his clerks to become Supreme Court clerks. That's because the justices, mostly the conservative justices, treated Brett like he was already almost on the Supreme Court. So, you know, this is somebody who any Republican would have appointed. Now, there's a reason that Trump has followed uh, this, you know, this well-trodden path in these nominations, and that's that he's guided by the Federalist Society, which doesn't care who's president as long as that president is a Republican. And listen to them. And boy, does he listen to them even more closely than George W. Bush did. So Democrats, separate from the process issue, the substance issue of why you might vote against Brett Kavanaugh is so far shaping up to be focused on two issues, abortion and investigation of the president. Let's talk about abortion first. I think you've written uh, with a little skepticism about the idea that suddenly you get a fifth vote for repealing Roe. Roe's gone, game over. You don't think Justice Roberts, among other things, likes the politics of that. Uh, And you think the Republicans, if they move against Roe, they're, they're much more likely to whittle away at it in stages. But what do we know about Kavanaugh and Roe v. Wade and abortion? And how is he likely, as opposed to one of the other justices that Trump might have appointed, likely to change the politics of the court on this particular issue? 
Well, no one doubts that Kavanaugh, as a good conservative, thinks that Roe v. Wade was wrongly decided. The question is just whether he thinks it's settled law that shouldn't be overturned, but should just be chipped away, chipped away, chipped away, which is sort of the John Roberts view. Yeah. Or whether he's with the other three conservatives who would almost certainly say, you know, feel free to strike it down. That really matters, because if Kavanaugh were to join the other three, then there would be four conservative justices calling for overturning it. Although that's not enough votes to get a decision, they would still need John Roberts. It would put huge pressure on Roberts to be alone as the sole conservative. And remember, John Roberts is hardly a liberal to be resisting this. And then that would really make his position, maybe not untenable, but pretty difficult. On the other hand, if Kavanaugh sides with Roberts and is willing to join, you know, an opinion of two that chips away and is then joined by the other three who nevertheless insist that their real preference would be to strike it down then we will get a kind of slower, more gradual death by a thousand cuts. Either way, the prospects for Roe aren't great, but it's the difference between a chipping method and a blow-it-all-up method. Now, where, does, where is Kavanaugh on that? He doesn't have anything in his record that shows it definitively. He has one opinion in the um, a dissent in the case of the young woman who was being detained by the INS who was seeking an abortion. He didn't address the constitutionality of her abortion claims. He was using procedural means to propose that more time be taken before she was able to get uh, the abortion that she, that she wanted and she ultimately had. So that doesn't definitively tell you where he stands. That was a very carefully crafted opinion not to anger conservatives without also calling for the striking down of Roe. My instinct, and it's just an instinct, is that Kavanaugh is going to be inclined to follow Roberts on this one. Huh. And the reason for that is that Kavanaugh is very much a political figure. He's aware of politics. He's worked in the White House. He has a very deep network of friendships and relationships with people throughout the Republican Party. He thinks about the meaning of these things for the movement as a whole. And the consensus among most non-Trumpy Republican elites, people who think about the party more than they think about you know, the absolute principle in a given moment, is that Roe v. Wade is the gift that keeps on giving for the Republican Party. And it would actually be a mistake to strike it down all in one because there would be a big backlash from Democratic voters. And it would also take away an issue that a lot of Republicans care about. So on that view, it's better to keep weakening Roe and keep holding out that promise while simultaneously not identifying the Supreme Court as the body that reversed Roe v. Wade, which is a terrible headline from John Roberts' perspective. So, you know, as I say, it's just an instinct, but I think that he would be in support of the Roberts position more than the support of the, you know, say Clarence Thomas or Samuel Alito view, which would just say, and I think Neil Gorsuch is probably here too, let's just issue an opinion saying Roe was always wrong and it's wrong today. I mean, it's funny when he is eventually, uh, when he eventually testifies, uh, Kavanaugh will of course say, oh, I follow precedent. I believe in, I'm an originalist. Uh, I apply the law. And that's not the reality of the thinking at all. And the way you just described it, the way Roberts and potentially Kavanaugh think about this issue is intensely in relation to politics, politics. I believe that it really is. Now, to be fair, and I think it is important to be fair here, all constitutional lawyers, especially the ones, you know, the nine ones in black robes, get the constitutional law has some elements of principle and some elements of politics, and some elements of pragmatism. And so the deep conservatives would say this is a case where principles should just win. You know, they just think Roe is a bad decision, and they would just call for striking it down and 
and be done with it. And that is a principled position. You may not like the principle. I know I don't, but it's still a principled position. But at the same time, you know, if you're going to be pragmatic, you have to think about real world consequences. So, you know, if you gave truth serum to John Roberts, yeah, I suspect there would be some partisan political element for sure. But there would also be an element where he would say, well, look, this is, in fact, settled law. It has been the law on the books for close to half a century. And it's not good for the court and it's not good for the public to definitively and in a rapid moment overturn big precedents or, in Roberts's view, make big new precedents. So in that way, you know, the idea that you should do something gradually rather than quickly is consistent with a kind of pragmatic view that is perfectly legitimately a part of constitutional judging, again, even though I would disagree with what they would want to do in this, in this instance. So the fact that it's partisan and political, which it is, is part of a legitimate constitutional reasoning process, in my opinion. Uh, Noah, lastly, I want to get into the issue of Kavanaugh's evolving views on investigating presidents and how that might play out in the context of the the Mueller investigation, which a lot of people have already raised uh, as an issue to scrutinize intentionally. Um, And let me let's maybe just start with a quick review of history. Kavanaugh was one of the key uh, people working for Ken Starr during the impeachment investigation of Bill Clinton. And going back to that, he took uh, let's say, a very capacious position on what the president could be investigated for, what he could be impeached for, uh, and also on the question of whether you could indict a sitting president. He believed you could. Um, as I understand it, his view has very much evolved on that issue, although not since simply since Trump has taken office, but in the in the intervening years as he got older and wiser, he decided that maybe it was such not such a good idea to be able to criminally indict a sitting president. And I think a lot of liberals have the response, well, wait a minute, we're, we may be looking at exactly that situation. How is it fair or reasonable for a president to appoint someone who's on record as taking his side in what may be a pending issue that may come to the Supreme Court? What's your what's your take? So I have a counterintuitive take on this. And I think it's that actually, if you look closely at what Kavanaugh has said, he's taken the view that the president can be investigated and maybe can even be indicted even today unless Congress passes a law saying he can't be. And Congress has not passed such a law. There is no such law on books. So to the extent that Kavanaugh wants to be legally consistent, and this is something he's tried to do in every piece of writing he's done on this, he's really striven for legal consistency, he would, I think, have to conclude that, in fact, the president can be investigated and maybe can even be indicted, although that's a harder case, right now. So I think, you know, it's a mistake for the Democrats to be focused on this issue. In fact, if you think about it, there's no other potential justice who actually served as part of a team that seriously contemplated indicting a president and that seriously investigated a president. And although he had said, gosh, I wish we hadn't had the legal responsibility to do that, he also believes it was constitutional for them to do that. In, in other words, and even in 1999, when he you know, was gone from that office, when he wrote a law article about this, he said there should be an independent counsel. We should change the law, but there should be an independent counsel. And that means that he believed then, and I suspect still believes now, that it is constitutional for there to be an independent counsel. So I I think the Democrats are really barking up the wrong tree if they say that's the reason that we should 
oppose him. His, his, his position is rather that it's a bad idea to do this and that Congress should do something about it, not the judiciary should do something about it. And that may sound not that different from a non-lawyer, but in the world of constitutional law, it's night and day. So you're saying his his position is sort of the position of uh, liberal jurisprudence circa uh, the 90s and the Clinton years when they believed that, say, the Paula Jones case, either a civil case or a regular criminal case against the president should be deferred until he left office, as opposed to what would be a much more extreme position of saying special counsel is unconstitutional, president can't be investigated at all while in office. I'm actually saying he has an even more pro-investigation position than the Democrats did then, because some Democrats then believed that it would be unconstitutional to indict the president, and that maybe it was even unconstitutional to subject the president to criminal investigation. He doesn't think that. And a lot of Democrats also oppose the independent counsel statute, and that's one reason that when it lapsed uh, in 2000, it wasn't ever re-upped. He argued in 1999 for a new independent counsel statute, changed a bit, but nevertheless, um, he argued for that to come into existence, which means he does not believe that the Constitution bars the president from being investigated and potentially even indicted by an independent counsel. So actually, his position is not only within the mainstream, but somewhat more appealing from the standpoint of someone who wants to see Donald Trump investigated um, than people think. It's just that that, you know, Making that point in this political environment is not going to be that easy. I'm actually, you know, just this morning as we speak, I'm finishing up a, a piece for, for Bloomberg that's going to make exactly that argument. I don't think it's going to make too many people happy, but at least I'll be able to explain the view. That's not your job, right. But uh, my concern is less that, that, that Kavanaugh has the wrong principles on this, but that he's not principled and will flack for the president. I mean, there's a report today. I don't I know, I don't know so if let, you, you've seen so it. let me push yeah. back against that. Yeah. Let, let me no, back and against I'm asking that. the question. All, I'm asking the question. Yeah. yeah. It is altogether reasonable to say, I was a kid. I investigated and prosecuted the president. Then I went to work for the president, a different president, and I realized that this is a, although that was constitutional what we did, it was a terrible idea because it paralyzed the presidency. And meanwhile, Osama bin Laden was making his plans. And by the way, that's a point that Kavanaugh himself made in a 2008 large work. He explicitly invokes bin Laden and says, look, Bill Clinton was distracted. He should have been focused on bin Laden. That's a completely defensible view. It's not a view of change in the law, and it's not hypocritical because when mm. he published the article saying this in 2009, Barack Obama was the president. You know, it wasn't it wasn't George W. Bush. So he was not saying this in order to give an advantage to one party or another. And Donald Trump was, you know, not even, uh, you know, the remotest dream as a president in anybody's mind. So I actually think that his evolution on this issue is completely logical and reasonable and not partisan. And that on the constitutional issues, he's been pretty consistent. Yeah. I don't know if you've just seen this report this morning, Noah, that um, on NBC News that there was a, a deal between Justice Kennedy and Trump to appoint Kavanaugh, who was his former law clerk. And that's raising a lot, a lot of eyebrows and issues. I mean, that would certainly be a kind of norm breaker if the, if the president had some kind of arrangement with a sitting Supreme Court justice about his replacement, right? You know, the reports that I saw, and they may, they may not be exactly in reports, were suggesting something close to that, but not exactly that. They were suggesting that Kennedy went to a lot of trouble to try to convince Trump to appoint Kavanaugh. And, of course, we already knew that, you know, Kennedy and Trump had a somewhat, you know, warm relationship. And we saw the retirement letter that began, my dear president, or my dear Mr. President, 
And we knew about the relationship between Trump and Kennedy's son, who was a banker at Deutsche Bank, who was involved in loans to him. My interpretation of that is that Kennedy was actually the one pushing this, not Trump. All along, as I've heard about this, my view has been Kennedy wanted to have a say in his replacement. He chose the person who was almost certainly his most prominent and successful law clerk, I guess with the exception of Neil Gorsuch, although Gorsuch is a complicated case because although he, he clerked for Kennedy, he wasn't actually hired to clerk by Kennedy, but by retired Justice Byron White. And on that view, it's completely unsurprising to me that Kennedy tried to get Trump to pick Brett Kavanaugh. And so all these stories, according to which, you know, somehow the president induced everyone, you know, we're also rightly eager to blame Donald Trump for things that sometimes we don't even contemplate the possibility that someone else was doing the heavy lifting here. Right. As I read it, it sounds like Kennedy was doing the heavy lifting. He was 80. He was ready to retire. He wanted to have a say in who would be picked. He did not want it to be a Yahoo. He did not want it to be, you know, Judge Napolitano. Um, and he <laughs> Judge Judy. Yeah. his substantial influence. So, you know, someone played someone here, but I would not assume that Tony Kennedy was played by Donald Trump. If anything, I would assume the opposite because the outcome is the outcome that Tony Kennedy would have wanted, not that Donald Trump would necessarily have had a view of. And as a historian of the court, uh, that kind of politics is, is, is certainly not unprecedented. It's not unprecedented. You know, I mean, the president doesn't have to listen to the justice. An explicit condition would probably be unprecedented because no president would really give, allow that. But an attempt to influence who goes on the court, plenty of justices have tried to have that influence. I mean, when Felix Frankfurter was on the Supreme Court, he never stopped pushing Franklin Roosevelt to appoint the people he wanted to have appointed. Um, and he, which he had been doing before, he was on the bench as well. And sometimes Roosevelt listened to him, and sometimes he didn't. There's a famous episode where not only did Frankfurter push the appointment of Judge Learned Hand, who was sometimes called the 10th Justice because he was so widely respected, he was on the Court of Appeals, but he had dozens of his friends send letters and other kinds of telegrams and other kinds of recommendations to, to Roosevelt to try to sort of force him into doing it. And then Roosevelt appointed someone different and kind of laughed and said, you know, Felix thinks he's in charge of the whole country, but this is my decision, not his. And Frankfurter was, was incredibly annoyed with, with Roosevelt, and Roosevelt was incredibly annoyed with Frankfurter, but Frankfurter did his level best. So, yeah, not, not totally un unprecedented in that regard. I've been speaking to Noah Feldman of Harvard Law School. Uh, you can read his pieces on the court on Bloomberg View and also in the New York Review of Books. Noah, I have to say, after I speak to you, I feel like I know what I'm talking about. That feeling sometimes lasts for hours. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thrilled to hear it. Uh, that's a great compliment coming from you, but you always know what you're talking about. Not so. so, not so. Thank you for joining me on the show. Take care. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast was produced by Jason DeLeon. Our sketch was improvised in our Brooklyn studio by Asher Perlman and Steve Waltine. And hey, are you a Slate Plus member? You can listen to this show without the ads, and occasionally you can get bonus segments, as with all the other Slate shows. It helps to support our work. Become a member at slate.com slash trumpcastplus. That's slate.com slash trumpcastplus. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Cast.